Amen. Thank the Lord for hymn writers. Be able to sing these wonderful truths, be reminded of God's faithfulness to his promises this morning through music. And I trust that you'll carry uh, these truths with you throughout the week. Find yourselves uh, maybe humming or singing along that one of those tunes. Um, encourage your heart in the days ahead. want to mention a couple things uh, by way of announcement. Don't usually do it at this point in the service, but I know we've got a number of folks uh, that, uh, that watch us via our live stream uh, locally here as, as well as um, distant. And I will tell you, I, it's a, hardly a week goes by I don't have somebody say, oh yeah, I watch you on, you know, live stream. It's quite humbling and a little bit unnerving. But um, anyway, glad that you do. Um, but I wanted to mention a couple things because we, uh, usually I do our announcements off camera at the end. But this is a Christmas season. There are some things coming up that uh, if you are here locally, we'd love to have you uh, come and enjoy them with us. First of all, this Saturday evening, kind of kicking off the holiday season, um, we are privileged here to host the Good News Brass um, in our location here. They rehearse here and kind of base out of here. And they will be kicking off our holiday season Saturday evening at 6.30 with a wonderful concert. And uh, it is free admission. Just love to have you come. Enjoy that, uh, that time together. Um, there will be a cookie reception at the end, if, you know, that kind of puts you over the edge uh, with, uh, with it. Um, we'll have a great time together on Saturday evening. And then next Sunday, uh, I will be starting a uh, series of Christmas messages um, focusing on the characters of Christmas. Now, I will also say, some of you follow my son on social media. We did not conspire on this. He, he's starting his series, The Characters of Christmas, this morning. So I guess he's smarter than I am because he's got five and I got four. But uh, uh, we did not conspire on that. But anyway, looking at Elizabeth, Joseph, Mary, and of course Christmas Eve at Jesus, the gift, the real gift of Christmas. And so I want to encourage you. Uh, I invite you to be here with us um, for these upcoming um, uh, Christmas messages. You know, sometimes this time of year, there are those opportunities uh, that uh, it affords us for, for folks to come out uh, to services and so encourage you uh, to join us uh, as you are able at 1030 on Sunday morning uh, as we celebrate Christmas these next few weeks. Well, let's take our Bibles this morning, shall we, and turn once again to the book of Romans. Romans 11. Romans 11. We are making progress. Uh, we have uh, made it this year uh, to this point. Really, this Romans 11 is the end of part one, as it were, of the book. Um, when you turn the page into chapter 12 or, you know, however that works in, in uh, your layout there in your text, um, you really get to the application side. First 11 chapters, Paul has dug deep theologically. Um, and it is a long, long list of the doctrines that have been rehearsed. Uh, some that, quite frankly, have been introduced into the New Testament church um, through Paul's writings here. And uh, certainly uh, in these uh, last uh, few chapters, 9, 10, and 11, he has kind of swung his focus to, uh, to the children of Israel. He himself, of course, is an Israelite, and uh, his heart is burdened for his people. And he just pours out his heart um, to them, in imploring them. 
um, to accept Jesus Christ as the Messiah because that is the only way for there to be salvation. And, uh, you know, Jesus Christ going to Calvary's cross, he, he had, had closed the door on the, the age of the law. And now they were under grace. And uh, the law had a purpose. It fulfilled its purpose. It was, as he says in another letter, the, the school teacher, the, the mentor, to prepare them for the coming of Christ. Tragically, so many of them had missed it. And so uh, we come now to Paul's closing arguments, as it were, to Israel. And the passage before us may... Uh, seem at first glance here uh, a little bit uh, mysterious, a little enigmatic, but in reality, Paul employs some very basic illustrations, some very relevant illustrations to them uh, to make a powerful point. And really what he is driving home here is the truth of God's amazing grace. Uh, we sing that wonderful hymn, and it really is amazing that God would show his grace to us a people who are so sinful, so undeserved. But that's what God is doing. And we've been reminded of that this morning through the scripture reading, through the songs that we have sung of God's faithfulness to his promises. And so we're going to open here this morning to, to Romans 11, look together as we continue this study. And I'm going to read in just a moment, I, I'm going to let you follow along. I'm going to read this chapter in its entirety um, some of you are going through our Bible reading plan together um, this year, and earlier uh, in the past week, um, you walked through these passages, and um, if you were reading it or listening to the audio uh, version of it, you, you had this uh, in front of you. And I really believe that if, I, if we'll take the time here, um, it'll give us a better sense of the context of this passage. Um, you know, if we if we skipped a rock across it, we we would see some of uh, some of the highlights, and, and we'll get to those. But these passages, not chapters 9, 10, 11 especially, if you're not careful, um, you can kind of you know reach in like kind of like the crane thing and just pull out this thing and pull out that this other thing, and it can get you into a little bit of theological trouble if you're not careful. But I think what Paul is saying here is clear. And, and the whole thing flows from one to the other to the other. And I remind you what he says there as he closes chapter 10. Again, it wasn't chapter 10 for him. It was just a paragraph and then into a new paragraph. But he closes that previous paragraph and he says, But of Israel, he says, this is God saying to his, his nation, to his chosen people Israel, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. What a statement. What, what a statement of God's faithfulness, what an, a statement of, of encouragement, but also what a condemnation. God has said literally now for, for hundreds, for thousands of years, he has held out his hands to them. Come, put your faith in me, put your trust in me. And so then Paul goes on and he says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. 
and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. 
He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I said if we skipped a rock across this landscape, across this passage, we may see three splashes. He starts with a question, has God rejected his people? By no means. Then he makes note that because of this salvation has come to the Gentiles. That's most of you. We do have a few Jews in here. But that's most of you. For from him, through him, to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. What a, what else, how else would you finish this but with a doxology? Who else could have done this? Who else could have come up with the plan to meet the need that was so great other than God? Man has always tried to come up with a better plan and has always fallen short. And so contained here in these final paragraphs of Paul's focused appeal to his Jewish readers, of course halfway through there you, you notice he kind of brought the rest of, ever, of the rest of us back in. It's like, oh, okay, now come on back in because we're going to bring this all together. We find him reminding them the great promises of God, the historical and present proofs that are right here before them, and ultimately the expected, the appropriate praise to God for what only he could do and is doing. So this morning I want us to look quickly at these three pieces as it were in his final paragraphs, these, these promises that God made, and Paul's reminding them, that the proof, you know, so many times in our, that's us in our human nature, it's like, well, we'll prove it, you know, because we're impatient. God exists in eternity, we're temporal beings, and so we get impatient, we get, we get to be questioning, we get to be wondering. And then, of course, again, Paul finishes with this great praise. Paul has concluded the previous paragraph with that powerful statement that God's making to the people of Israel. 
All day long I've held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. What love. What patience. And then immediately he poses that question. So has God rejected his people? And then comes that very familiar answer. What we would say today is, no way. (laughs) He says, by no means. Or some have translated it, God forbid. It is an absolute negative. The expression he uses here carries with it that power that just says, it's just totally impossible that that could be the conclusion. Has God rejected his people? No way. We would say in our vernacular, are you kidding me? Are you nuts? No. Ten times Paul employs the expression in the first 11 chapters of the letter. You ask an outlandish question, you're going to get a pretty dogmatic answer. We still experience that today. Somebody will ask us just something crazy and we look at them and go, no. (laughs) That's essentially what Paul is doing here as he writes. As I was thinking about this, I I thought, you know what, the fact that Paul does this ten times, the Holy Spirit leads him to do it ten times in 11 chapters, it might be good to just refresh this very quickly. In Romans chapter 3, he asks the question, does man's unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? No. Is God unrighteous to judge, he asks in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6? No. Does faith contradict the law, in verse 31? No. In chapter 6. He asks in verse 2, do we continue in sin so grace may abound? And what is the answer? No. Are we to sin because we are under grace? No. Chapter 7, is the law sin? No. Is the law the cause of our sin? No. Chapter 9, he says, is God unjust? No. And now here in chapter 11... Has God rejected his people? No. Is Israel irrecoverable? No. Is there any reason he ends with this doxology? All of these wonderful truths. And he says here in answer to all of these questions that are very natural in the human, temporal, sinful mind. By no means. Yes, he's faithful. Yes, he's forgiving. Yes, there is grace. If God rejects Israel, then a promise is broken. A promise that goes back to Genesis chapter 12. A promise that at this point in time is some 1,800 years old. God does not break promises. This is a powerful message to us as well that God is absolutely trustworthy. Through the years, even since Abraham, God had made repeated promises. Had confirmed to people like Joshua, David, 
Solomon and others that God is a promise-keeping God. The passage we have looked at this morning in 1 Kings 8, Solomon here is, is rehearsing the fact that God had made promises and, and now the temple has been built and it is being dedicated. And in chapter 8, verse 56, we re- had it read to us, Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. Solomon goes all the way back to Moses. And he reminds the people, not a single word has failed. Some of God's promises to Israel were conditioned upon their obedience. God had said, if if you obey, then here's the blessing that will come. That that was totally appropriate. Many of them were, were proposed to them that way. Greatest promise? The promise of Messiah, the promise of Redeemer, that rested in Him alone. That is key. There's no picture more clear in Scripture than in Genesis 15. God had originally given the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. He had confirmed it a couple more times, and one of those times is in Genesis 15. And if you remember, God gives Abraham a command. He says, I want you to take some animals. There's an ox, there's a goat, there a sheep, and a couple birds. And, and this is what they would do back in that day and when they would seal a contract between parties. And literally they cut the cow in half, cut the sheep in half. They would take these two birds, put them. And the two parties agreed to the contract would walk between those sacrificial pieces. I mean, you can kind of picture this, right? It's a little bit of a gory sight. But what they were in effect saying is, if I break the contract or the other party in the contract, if I break the contract, then let this be done to me. But if you remember in Genesis 15, God has Abraham lay all that out on the ground. Abraham knew probably had done it before. He was a businessman. And then God caused the sleep to fall on Abraham, and God said, now watch. And God comes down in the presence of a, of a lamp, and he passes through the midst of the sacrifices alone. As if to tell Abraham, Abraham, there's nothing you can do to seal this contract. This one's on me. And he had been faithful. He had sent his only begotten son to die on Calvary's cross. Despite the promises, numerous evidences of God's faithfulness, Israel had rejected the Messiah, Jesus. And so God set aside Israel for a time. The natural human response is, well, how do I really know? And to this, Paul gives five proofs. He had made the promise, and Paul's like, okay, I I know you have questions. I know there's maybe some doubts. Let me remind you of five proofs that you can hold to. And he presents, as it were, these five witnesses. And first of all, he shares his own confidence based on his experience. Paul's life experience gives a glimpse of what Israel will experience. Paul's testimony is recorded numerous times through the New Testament. And essentially, he is saying to them, I rejected Jesus for so long, 
but God continued to hold out his hands to me, and I received. Three times in the book of Acts it's rehearsed. Paul rehearses it in other places as well. You know the story of what he was like. How he persecuted believers, how he imprisoned them, how he, he was there. He held the coats of those who stoned Stephen, the first martyr. And Paul says, God saved me. Even through all of that, I realized that he stood with his arms outstretched to me. Essentially, he's saying, folks, if he could save me, he could save you. The apostle then calls on the witness of Elijah. Again, remember this story, verses 2 through 10 here, he, he recounts it. He's referencing back to 1 Kings 18 and 19. The prophets of Baal are defeated by God. And, of course, Jezebel responds by putting a bounty on the head of the prophet. And as he runs for his life, he complains to God, right? I, only I. We do that too. But God takes him out into the wilderness and reminds them, no, there are 7,000 others who have not yet bowed the knee to Baal. There was a remnant. Yes, it was only a remnant. No, it wasn't the majority, but there was a remnant. There will always be a remnant. In the next several sentences, Paul points to a most unlikely witness. And that's where he kind of brings in the rest of the crowd again. He's, he says he points to the Gentiles. And the statement, salvation has come to the Gentiles, is made not to incite anger from the Jews, but to show them that God's grace has been extended just as he had promised. The unbelief of Israel is resulting in Gentiles coming to salvation. Tim Keller makes an interesting point in his commentary on Romans that if the Jews had wholesale trusted in Jesus, if when Jesus came, went to the cross, and all of a sudden, you know, the word goes out, the veil of the temple is split in two, and so on, if the Jews had wholesale trusted in Jesus, the Gentiles would have seen it as a Jewish thing. And they probably would have said, like so many times happens, hey, look, the Jews have a new exciting uh, belief. Good for them. Just keep it in your synagogue where it belongs. Don't bother us with it. But God has intentionally used the rejection and the broadening of the gospel message to the Gentiles to, as he says here in the passage before us, to arouse a jealousy within the Jews. See, to the human ear, to the human mind, the concept of jealousy is typically understood to be a very bad thing. It's a very manipulative thing. But there is, however, such a, good, such a thing as a good jealousy, profitable, appropriate jealousy. And consider for, for a minute, because again, we, we know if God is saying, I did this to make them jealous, God never sins. So there's got to be an answer, right? There's got to be a reason that makes this one okay. As I thought about it, I was like, well, this is pretty simplistic, but that's me. So, you know, consider for a minute a newlywed couple. All right, some of you are, would fall still as far as from the rest of us, our perspectives. I mean, we've been married 32 years. So, you know, if you're less than five years, you're still newlywed. But um, you may, 
look around and you may see a couple that's been married for a few decades. And you see the love that they continue to display and have for one another. You see how they, you know, they still seem to like one another. They get along. They do things together. You may aspire to that. Well, is that not a good thing? You see, could, it, could this not be used as an encouragement to them to cultivate a God-honoring marriage? And there's plenty of examples out there of marriages that have come apart. But here's one that's, that's making it, okay, let's, let's be like that. It, it arouses that, that desire in the, in the heart. And so God is saying, turning my attention to the Gentiles, offering salvation to the Gentiles, it is cultivated in the Jewish heart, this jealousy, to draw them back. So to bridge the gap between the third and the fourth witnesses and what he's doing here is he's alluding to the, the patriarchs. Paul uses an illustration that would very much resonate in the first century mind. You see, the grafting in process of a wild branch, the Gentiles, makes that very clear. He, he uses two illustrations. He uses one illustration of the, of the dough and the leaven in the dough, and it makes the, the whole dough rise. But then he departs from that rather quickly, and he, he really spends time on the, the illustration of the grafting in process, and it's, it's vivid. But how he explains it, quite frankly, is backwards of the way that they did it in that agrarian society. Typically, in, in this society, what they would do is they would take a tree, or there would be a tree, that was ailing. And they would go get a, a, a branch from a healthy tree and graft it in with the goal, and often successful, to give new life into that struggling tree. This illustration is the reverse of that. He says there's a healthy tree. There's nothing wrong with the roots, right? Because who's the roots? God is the root. The tree, though, has some branches that are dying and they just fall off. But he then takes this wild branch and he grafts it into the tree. The tree and the branches there are the Jewish remnant, the believers, Paul other Jewish believers in the New Testament church. I said this wasn't the normal practice. The broken branches are those of Israel who didn't believe. He says that very clearly in verse 20. Judas was a broken branch. Caiaphas, the high priest, was a broken branch. And what this shows is that God had not given up on the tree. He had not given up on Israel. He didn't cut down the tree and turn his attention to a whole new tree. No, he grafts in. God has not forsaken Israel. He grafted in this wild olive shoot. That's what he says in verse 17. So furthermore, he gives hope to those who have not yet believed. In verse 23, he tells them, that through belief, do you see this amazing truth here? Through belief, God has the power to graft them in again. What grace. What patience. What love. It is that proof of him all day long holding out his hands. 
then finally he points them once again to God. Because God's timing is perfect. There will come a day, as he says here, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God's promise given through Isaiah, God's promise given through Zechariah, will come to pass. Israel will ultimately turn to realize that Jesus is the Messiah. God's covenant with Israel is honoring of that covenant, but is by his grace, not because of works. And he says that very plainly in verses 5 and 6. It's been said, and we really see it here in this whole passage, it's been said in understanding kind of how all of this flows and at least trying to put it so our human minds can somewhat grasp it, that there are three Jewish R's. There's a remnant, there's a rejection, and then there's a restoration. That's kind of how it flows out historically with the Jews and their faith and their relationship with with God, with with Jehovah. God has not rejected the Jews, even though they have largely rejected Jesus. No, there is a future for them, alongside and along with all the Gentile believers in one final holy people of God. Jews and Gentiles coming together. Did we see that last week in our praise service from Revelation 7? Yes, John first, in that first part of that that segment of the vision, he sees the 144,000 Jews, his kinsmen gathered there before the throne. But then he says, and I saw a multitude, innumerable, gathered around the throne. I mean, this this like blows the Jewish mind. (laughs) This is oil and water. They don't mix, right? I mean, it's like Patriots fan and Christians. They, they just, how does that work? I digress. I would have used a college football illustration, but that would have been lost. So, how do these two historically divergent and hostile people groups come together? God is amazing. Who would have thought of this? Who could have possibly come up with the plan, let alone actually brought it to fruition? God's grace is amazing. We we read these passages, chapters 9, 10, and 11. And as Gentiles, we should be profoundly humbled. And he gives that exhortation here. Because God has made a way for us to receive salvation through Jesus. And the question then must be asked, have you accepted that gift? Being grafted in is not a right. It's not an entitlement. I was not grafted in because my dad is a pastor. You're not grafted in because your parents believe. It is grace. And so we should join with Paul in his doxology in verses 33 through 36. 
Because Paul's theology that he has just laid out for us under inspiration of the Holy Spirit leads him to an irrepressible exaltation of praise to God. The song here at the end of the chapter is the culmination of all that Paul has shared in these first 11 chapters. We go all the way back to chapter 1 and, and the wickedness that he talks about and, and deals with and how God, you know, God gave them over. God gave them up. Reminds us all that we've all sinned. You know, he just walks us through it. The culmination of all that results in this praise. Because as he has laid out, all men, women, boys, girls, we are all dirty, rotten sinners. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Right? Chapter 3, chapter 6. And God has demonstrated his love by sending Jesus to die for us. We go through difficulties. We go through hardships. Our mind begins to question, does God, has God given up on us? Has God rejected us? Does God really love us like he says he does? Yes, he does. And he proved that by sending Jesus. So then what do we do about it? And he answers that question in chapter 10 that we looked at just in the last couple of weeks. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Knowing all of this, what other response could there be other than praise for the riches, wisdom, and knowledge of God? You see what he says there in verse 33 and down to the end. Paul has affirmed God's sovereignty, God's wisdom, God's integrity, God's generosity, God's holiness, God's justice, all of his graces. And yes, all of this is nearly impossible for the human mind to comprehend. And he acknowledges that by his statements. How unsearchable. Literally that expression means incapable of being tracked. The old timers used to say if you can't track him you can trust him. That's really what, it, what he's saying. How unsearchable. I can't even understand how he got here. He says how inscrutable. I can't even understand it he says. This is where faith comes in, is it not? For by grace you have been saved through faith. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. If you are hearing this today, if you have not accepted the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ... The fact that you are hearing this today is proof of God's grace. Him honoring the promise. The concluding statement is this. Based on all this, 
how wicked we are, how sinful we are, how, how horrible we have been to God. He gets to the end of all of this and he says, God is the first cause for everything. We're from him. He is the functional cause of everything. He is the final cause of everything. He's creator. He's sustainer. He is the ultimate ruler. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we, we stand amazed before this truth that you would love us so much that you would send your son to die on Calvary's cross. That despite the continued rejections of your people, your arms are still open wide. Your hands are held out ready to receive. Oh, Father, we praise you for bringing about salvation for all of us. For not just closing the door when the Jews refused to believe, but then opening it even wider to include the rest of us. Oh, Father, may we never get over it. We, may, we, may we never grow numb to the impact of it, the truth and reality of it. So, Father, if there is one here today who has not yet accepted you, may this be the day of their salvation. May they realize your great love and patience and grace and mercy. Father, may we go from this place. May we share the wonderful message, the good news, the gospel of Jesus. May we not be ashamed. We praise you, we thank you, in the name of Jesus, our risen Savior.